Hey everybody, quick intro. This is the second of the two uh, episodes that I rescued from the previous failed attempt at creating a podcast. For those of you who remember a few episodes ago, I talked about trying to start a podcast, but failing miserably because I didn't have a service like Anchor to host my podcast. I essentially thought SoundCloud would be the thing and SoundCloud ended up not being good for what I was trying to do because there were limitations in terms of runtime or the amount of data I could possibly upload um, in order for me to not have those limitations. I would have had to subscribe for an enormous amount of money, at least what wasn't an enormous amount of money back then. Whereas with Anchor, I don't have to spend that kind of money. And with Anchor, I can also make money off advertising. Uh, and I know this sounds like an ad for Anchor, but it's really not. If you want to hear my ads, uh, they, they're much uh, less sincere than this because I'm nervous when I read ads. And you can hear them on some of my episodes, but not all of them. Anyway, I went into SoundCloud before closing my account and I rescued the last two episodes. Uh, one of them was with actor and artist Michael Bailey and You've, you, you have access to that already because I've already introduced and run that episode. This is the second one. This is the fifth and last episode of that first attempt at making a podcast. And this is with writer. He's a playwright, and he's also a writer of fiction and essays. His name is John Mark McDonald, and I went to school with him in my undergraduate career. Uh, and so here is that interview with John Mark McDonald. Thanks. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome back to The Outhouse. Today I am here with John Mark McDonald, uh, a former student at the same college I went to, SUNY Empire State College. We're both graduating in June, and he's here to talk with us about life, politics, work, and whatever else he's willing to open up about. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Yeah, I don't... I, uh, go for it. All right, so... Um, I'm interested generally in higher education for uh, working adults, and I'm, I'm interested in what brought you back to college, even though you've already got uh, what I gauge to be a career in a publicist, publicist public relations, which so, is yeah. a lot what a lot of people strive to be. Right. <laughs> now you've gone back to school to not be in it, and I'm interested in that. That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as we were talking about before the show, uh, yeah, my career is publicity, public relations. I am a publicist, and I um, don't want to be a publicist anymore. But actually, the reason that I, I, I went back to school is not because I wanted to change careers. Uh, it was more because um, I felt as though I... Had, there was that was always missing you know I was from the time I was 18 to 20 I did the traditional college route and uh, was at a school at Baylor University in Waco Texas um, I lived on campus yeah, um, a lot of things happened and I, I moved to Washington DC where I, I kind of had a career that that took off despite not having a degree but in the back of my mind I always wanted to go back um, and so one day I decided to apply. I didn't tell anybody. 
uh, one of our mutual friends, George, has always been a good friend of mine, and I didn't tell him. This is that kind of an interesting story. He, he I didn't tell him that I was applying. I didn't tell anybody, and um, he. So I applied, and then finally I called him and I said, George, I kind of need to tell you something. I applied to go back to school, and George said. Oh my gosh, so did I. We had never discussed anything about going back to school, ever. And I said, oh, well, I, interestingly, I applied to go back to um, Empire State College. And George said, so did I. <laughs> and so we never discussed going back to school. And yet we had both applied to the same school. And uh, we started back together. But he graduated last year. But it, it was just something that I always wanted to... Um, have was my my bachelor's degree and while in school I realized I wanted to take a different tact in life I wanted to, to move in a different direction and uh, that's where kind of you know writing took hold I mean I had always written as a publicist that's all you do um, but that's where I realized that I had a real love affair with writing do you feel that you can hit handle the work better than you were able to when you were young let's just put it this way none of my transfers from baylor tra i mean my credits <laughs> from tra baylor transferred so yeah i believe i can handle it a lot better um do you think that's largely because of your experience in the workforce absolutely and also i mean i don't know i mean i i understand why people need to get their degree i guess at 18 to 22 and why that's that's encouraged but i certainly didn't have the maturity to handle all of that um yeah me neither and so going back especially at a place like esc um with all its problems it does have a lot of uh, things um that make it a valuable place of higher education such as um the ability to to tailor your your degree plan uh, the way you want and and also the the all the classes are offered um, late afternoon, early evening for people who work. I found uh, both of those things to be valuable in the sense that I, you know, I wasn't able, I would not have been able to go to traditional school, return back to school at a traditional school because of the hours. So, and I also don't know that I could have adhered to a traditional degree plan. And just to clarify for some of the listeners who don't know the term degree plan, uh, some colleges don't even really have that term. Uh, so basically at ESC, what you have to do in your first term is you take a course called education planning. And in that course, you actually get four credits for designing what your education plan will look like. And so for every term, you're actually pre-designating what courses you're going to take and why you're taking them and how, how this kind of all builds up to meet whatever that degree is. So uh, I believe both of us got cultural studies degrees right? Uh, with a concentration in creative writing. So what makes a cultural studies degree? And then why, what, why, what makes the concentration in creative writing is essentially what you have to know before you can pursue your other terms. It's a very fascinating concept to be able to, to have a blueprint to, to, to a bigger picture of what education actually looks like. Uh, and 
not a lot of colleges actually from what I understand have that term but also even really kind of see uh, push their students to see their education that way and I think that a lot more people would be more uh, understanding of what higher education is and how important it is uh, if more colleges adopted this idea. Right, absolutely. And the other thing that I found fascinating, and I didn't discover it until meeting you, was that you can actually even, you can actually develop your own classes within your degree plan uh, many times, as long as it's approved. And um, Yep. Uh, so there's an ethics issue with that. Um, you have to be, the school has to have somebody on their faculty who's both qualified and willing to um, be the professor responsible for that study uh, and so basically what I did was I for one course I had a reading list and for another course I had a syllabus and I was able to use those as uh, proof that this is college level learning um, and so basically what I did was I had my faculty mentor send a mass email out to all of the professors call college-wide now Empire State College is a statewide college there's no central campus there's a headquarters in Saratoga Springs, but all the professors and students are all over the place. And so I ended up getting a professor from Long Island and a professor from Buffalo. And we communicated by phone and email. I think I went out to Long Island physically the first for the first meeting. But essentially what what happens is we talk about the syllabus for my specific study, uh, which didn't really change much from the ones that I had initially pitched uh, and we figure out which term that this is going to fall into and how it'll fall into my degree plan and uh, yeah I ended up taking a course that uh, science was it right writing and reading science fiction which I adapted from Iowa State mm -hmm. the undergraduate not the Iowa writers workshop uh, and then the Moby Dick study I adapted from Johns Hopkins. Wow. <laughs> so, um, and then there were more that I wanted to do, but not enough time in life. <laughs> right. Or in uh, student loans. <laughs> right, exactly. I wish that I had known about that option. Uh, but once it became, once I discovered it from you, it was also already too late. Like everything was set in stone. and. Yeah, actually a great example of one that got turned down that I pitched because, you know, the ethics issue, nobody felt they were qualified to do it. I wanted to study a French author named Louis Ferdinand Céline. He was sort of a dirty realism. Uh, he Great writer, but a total douchebag. He was very into Holocaust denialism. Oh. Uh, but uh, his writing it inspired Bukowski and some of the beats and... Uh, just in, in terms of tone. And so um, while a lot of cultural studies professors knew who he was, they didn't feel that they knew him enough to be able to teach him. And what's interesting is I was at the one of the Columbia University bookstores in Morningside Heights, and uh, there's a professor there that's teaching Celine's book, Journey to the End of the Night. And so I'm so jealous that you're now going to Columbia because <laughs> I really want somebody who, who can teach him. <laughs> Well, um, you can take that class for me because, uh, yeah, clearly I don't know anything about it. Uh, but yeah, that's. Um, I think also 
for me, especially going back to your earlier question about going back to school, that if I had, if I, if someone had told me, even after I had applied and decided to go back to school, that I would then, after getting my bachelor's, which we'll get hopefully <laughs> in about a, a month, yeah. uh, about three weeks, um, is that I would have never believed I would have gone on to graduate school. So, like, we're both going to graduate school, you know? I mean, that's something. I think for people, for people, I'm not speak for everyone, but for me, going back to school, you know, at 37, I'm now 40. Um, to wrap my mind around that and be able to graduate and then go on to graduate school is, um, you know, I rarely take pride in anything that I've done, but I, I do take pride in that and, and knowing that, oh, okay, we, we, the kind of caliber work that got us into graduate school for the work that we do and that we love. And in a way, that's an affirmation in and of itself. Um, yeah. Now we have to just finish. And you know, I don't, I don't know if you're as pessimistic as me about it, but I would always seen the MFA as something untouchable by the likes of me, simply because I came up, I came up in an education system where like, I was not the guy who would go to college. I was exactly. not the guy right. who would go to graduate school right. um, I remember my guidance counselor I told her I wanted to study film and if she knew any places I could go to study film and her first response we're talking about my high school guidance counselor Portland High School Mrs. Davidson <laughs> I don't know if you're alive or not but uh, this was back in 2000 and she goes her response was <laughs> don't wow. your father have a union you can he can get you into and I was so pissed and I wasn't the only one though because I made sure I told everybody about her response and what happened next was somebody had sent out for me to receive brochures to several film schools and so I ended up applying to the Vancouver Film School and then I guess some of my teachers got together and signed me up to receive some scholarship money wow. uh, to pay for the books and then that summer uh, a teacher that I had my freshman and sophomore year of high school uh, had come out to the restaurant I was cooking at. He knew I'd cook there because he had a boat. And this was a restaurant where you had to take a boat out to an island. Oh. Uh, it was, it was kind of a main thing. Uh, and he knew I had, I had cooked there. And so he came out to see if I was still there. And he gave me money to pay for the flight. He's like, wow. And, you know, they don't trash their co-workers outrightly but you could tell that they were really embarrassed by what she said and wow. they kind of came together and helped me get to film school and so when i came to new york and saw sense. that you know there's this institution that you can get a ba out, out off the bat um uh if you're willing to work for it you can get it and i'm like you yeah. you know i had gone through this this hellish product film production back in 2013 which is still in post-production and i decided i wanted to take a break and try my hand again at the whole education sector and the fact that new york state has a way for me to be able to do that for you to be able to do that uh it, it's really quite remarkable you know if i were still in maine i'd probably have to enroll at a community college and really it would take 10 times as longer and there's no guarantees that I would ever be able to get a BA. Uh, right. it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And Absolutely. I never thought that I would do as well as I did or even move on to a grad school. Right. Exactly. I mean, like, well, I had the kind of the same experience in high school 
I went to a very conservative Christian high school. It was small. We didn't have guidance counselors, but I did. The, the, the principal was also the football coach, and um, he did not like me because I quit the football team the third game of the season because I had a broken wrist and broken ribs, and I figured probably football wasn't for me. And uh, so one day in class, he showed up. So he's the principal. He just comes into class, and he it was a, a history class, and he interrupts, and he says, you know, typical Texan kind of, you know, he wore giant belt buckles and tight jeans and talked with an affected Texas accent. And he said, um, so who all in the class, I guess it was probably January, February, maybe March, just the beginnings of everyone, we were seniors, everyone being accepted into schools. And he said, so who's so far been accepted into school? And I raised my hand and I was the only one and I had been accepted to Baylor. And uh, he, he kind of laughed and he said, oh yeah, but that, that's contingent on if you graduate. And I go, he goes, no, you've got that. I had to take a, a geometry class as a, um, as a, not an independent study, what would you call it? Long distance learning back before the internet where you, they sent you a test, you marked it, you sit, put it in an envelope, you sent it back. Um, and he, he said, so you, you know, you probably, he hated me and I mean really hated me. Um, yeah, so you probably won't even graduate, so you're not going to college. <laughs> And it's like, okay, of course I graduated, right? Um, but you know those sorts of things that stick out with you, you know. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times people don't recover from that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I had know. your had had your had your other teachers not rallied around. Yeah, I uh, you know even though it worked out for the best and people understood that this woman was being a total bitch, and I don't use that word lightly. Um, in light of the times we're living in, but she was a total bitch. Uh, I still get angry about it, even though it ended well. It, it was for the best, you know. Uh, I still I can't help but get angry, and I think it's because somebody like that should not be working right. in that capacity. Right. And there's, I know for a fact, there's so many people who are. I mean, the the current thing right now is like school lunches, for example. I don't know if you've read about it, but New Mexico has passed a law saying that if your student can't afford school lunch, you still have to give it to him. You can't give him flack because his parents can't afford school lunch. And, you know, when I was growing up, like, if I couldn't afford school lunch, like, they took the tray from you. Right. Even if, and they'd throw it away. They'd rather throw away food than give it to somebody who can't afford it. Wow. And uh, that still goes on in many states. And I think people like that should not be working, you know, with kids of any age. Yeah, imagine how many people she said that to who didn't speak up. I mean, you are not the only one. No, you I know? know. And so, like, the, the influence that she has, it, it's disproportionate. A high school, anybody in high school who's in a position of authority has a disproportionate amount of influence. Yeah. Because, I mean, in high school, every adult was, even if you hated them and you thought they were nothing, they were, they had the power. And when someone with that kind of power or, or influence over you says, you know, you're in a union job, how many people went, uh, I guess, okay. Yeah. I, guess that's I mean, like a lot. I mean, there were some people who I was so sure 
were going to surpass me, you know, if they had pursued film or video or anything, uh, even on the if they had pursued the crew side of things, I was so sure they would have surpassed me. But they listened to these people. They listened to the wrong people, and it's probably still happens without a doubt. I can't give you specifics, but I do know some people who are still, are, their kids have gone through that same school system, the Portland public school system, and they had to pull their kids out. Wow. Uh, you know, and because it's the same shit. And uh, it's, it's really sad. And uh, I'm glad New York State offers an opportunity for uh, working adults to kind of undo all that damage. Right. And it, it was pretty damaging, you know. Prior to enrolling at ESC, I couldn't even calculate tip. I didn't know about the whole fifteen percent double it or whatever, ten percent double it to twenty, right. <laughs> uh, and how to move the decimal over. And I, I do fault the the education system, but I, a huge amount of credit goes to State University of New York for being able to just reset me personally. Oh, absolutely. And reset me just from my experience in college. I mean, that was a, all, a different devastating experience. And I thought that I uh, I didn't know if I had what it took to, to even do it again, you know. And then the experience overwhelmingly was positive. There were, of course, there were some negative things that happened, um, but overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and I think the fact that we're going to graduate school is proof of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, like, I mean, I think the experience with the Metropolitan Review, which is the school's um, Empire State College's literary and arts journal, and Eric and I were both uh, editors on it. Um, I think that experience, you know, helped with the things that we don't even realize. Um, and it's also that kind of experience that looks good on graduate school applications. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and I, I fought, I didn't fight to get on that thing. By the way, like I pitched a fit and like refused to talk to a certain somebody until she invited me to work on it. Really, <laughs> nice. we won't drop names here, but she knows who she is. Right. Finally, she invited me. She's like, she kind of sensed that I was really like getting disgruntled. She's like, Eric, would you like to work on the Metropolitan View this ne- next term? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a fun experience. I worked on it for two years and um, just kind of, you know, very uh, hands off the second year. But uh, it was it was a fun experience just to see how that kind of stuff works and and gets done. And and also, what really I appreciate it was so when you're an editor of anything, um, you get a lot of crap. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of crap that comes through. And yep. and and and. You have to trudge through that, of course. But when when something beautiful, whether it's writing or artwork, photography, uh, comes through, it, I mean, it really does make it all worth it. I remember... Like bus ride. Oh, let me get the Metropolitan Review. Keep talking. Yeah. No, I remember when I was reading through some stuff, and I, I was on probably my fourth or fifth... Uh, long essay that wasn't formatted in the way we ask it to be formatted and had tons of spelling errors and you could tell it was just a submission that they had used for their class two years ago and they hadn't updated it and it probably got a D from their professor and they submitted it to us for whatever reason because they thought it was good and um, I remember actually reading your story 
uh, what was the title of it? Um, Squatterism. Um, Squatterism. At high noon. And I'm thinking, now that's what it is. That's what that is. Where you read something, you go, yes, this is exactly why you do what you do because this is beautiful writing. And I, um, and there was other writing like that where you come across it, you go, yes, what a relief. I mean, it felt yeah. like a, like like I mean, like I felt, you were getting water in the desert. I felt that way about Ingrid's poem Absolutely. "Bus Ride." Yeah. Where she's essentially describing your typical bus ride on a New York City MTA city bus. And she's so spot on. Uh, I feel like we should read from some of it because it's so good. You want to read some of it? You read it. You want me to read it? The front is an infirmary. Cranes curved, wooden, and steel. Coming, going. Gladys just got off her 117. And now she's on. Fired up like the caffeine working its way through your system. God damn it, I know it. I just know it. She's at maximum volume. Doesn't care who hears. Her business spread all over the MTA's property like cocoa butter <laughs> on ashy skin. Ray Ray ain't good for nothing. Sheila, listen. Sheila, listen. Sheila, I'm a telling you. I'm a cutting that cable. That phone. He ain't gonna know what hit his ass. More bitter than your caffeine drip. Snap that New York Times across your face. <laughs> Let people know you're not like her. 86th Street. Next stop, youth, freedom, giggles, the casual, understated confidence of privilege. She was like, she was like, 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 because I was like, and then I'm like, like, like. These kids don't dip their heads to check the balance on their Metro card when they board. They will never meet a Con Ed bill they cannot pay. They're sure to get off before the neighborhood starts looking too bleak. Sheila, uh-huh, uh-huh. Ray Ray, we're told, is about to find out who runs this bitch. Gladys stays on until the end. So when we received that yeah. poem, we, we saw that scene. We've seen that scene a thousand times. But the one that really got all of us was... They will never meet a con ed bill yeah. they cannot pay. And immediately, I'm looking at the kids who are getting off at 72nd Street. Right. probably live relatively near Central Park West or Riverside, you know, Upper West Side. Like, those are the kids that she's describing. Oh, absolutely. No, I remember, I remember when we went over that point. Because, so my role, when, when Eric was an editor, I was, I was just basically over, so I didn't really say which things I favored or not unless, it, you know, it came down to that. And I remember we were we were kind of in a drought, like it had been one bad thing after another, and everything <laughs> kept getting voted down. And it was because it needed to be voted down. There was no way most of that crap yeah. was going into a publication. And then this came up, and I just remember when it came up for vote and thinking, oh, my God, if they do not. And everyone was just like, yes, absolutely, this is this is incredible and it is because you know i live up in washington heights and so i watched that unfold on the subway every day where people you know on the a train or the c train or you know you watch you watch first of all you watch as the shade of the complexions of everyone on the subway car gets darker and darker as as the streets increase upwards to washington heights washington heights is um great visual too very uh, very northern part of manhattan uh it's basically 
nor the northernmost tip that you can get to before you fall into the water. Um, and uh, you you head up. I mean, it's past Harlem, and past Harlem, there's an area called Hamilton Heights, and then it's Washington Heights, and um, you you see this 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 thing take place every day where it's it's you know the subway for New York is the great equalizer. You know, there's the millionaires with uh, people who are in the throes of poverty. And they're all mixed together. But as you go up the way, I live at 190th. And as you head up, you know, 72nd, which is the Tony Upper West Side, into Harlem, which is now gentrified. Once you start passing Harlem, 125th, 137th, 145th, Darker, darker, darker. And that when I when I heard that poem, I was like, I don't I don't take the bus that often unless I'm going east to west or west to east. But um, it certainly applies. Absolutely, especially to the one train. <laughs> On the one train, especially, yeah. yeah, that's where you can definitely see it. But um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think when we came across stuff like that, where and I mean I don't even know if I've ever met Ingrid. Do you know her? Um. I don't think I do, um, but I'm to understand she was a Metro student, so there's a very good chance I ran into her and didn't realize it. Right. Oh, okay. Like, and then you read stuff like that, and you're like, oh, I hope she's going on to grad school, too. <laughs> or at least put her work out there. I think that was one of the most gratifying things, too. I remember I was sitting in the, in the lobby of the... You see, it's very non-traditional in every sense of the word. I mean... There's no real campus. There's, you know, a yeah. couple of floors in the building in Manhattan, a couple of floors in the building in, in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn and a couple, I don't know even know where Staten Island is. Staten, so Staten Island's in this, uh, it's kind of a clinic. Oh. And they rent, like, a few rooms. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I remember just sitting in the lobby, and I had gone around to speak about the Metropolitan Review to different classes, and there was this uh, lady who she ran up to me and she, she she had a very strong what sound I can't I, I don't know where she was from but it sounded maybe Jamaican very strong Jamaican accent and she said uh, you came and spoke to me and uh, spoke to the class and I'm going to submit and I was like great and I told her how to submit and everything and it ended up I don't even remember her name I just remember she was at the reception and she ran up to me and she showed it to me and it, it, because it got published and uh, I, you know, I'll I'll remember that for the rest of my life. You know, that yeah. was she she was so grateful for that opportunity. So yeah, I, I felt that way about um, not so much with this, but when I first started ex- um, reviewing films for film festivals. Oh yeah, um, I really appreciated the you know the filmmakers who didn't take it for granted. Right. You know. Because um, it's not easy to get seen in such a cluttered world. Absolutely. Um, so, I don't know, John Mark. What's wrong with the pe- the, the the industry you're in now? You know, the uh, the uh, oh, publicist. it's just publicity. a very uh, dis- dishonest <laughs> industry. I mean, you're trying to, as I told you before, uh, when you went on the air that. You know, oftentimes you're trying to make you're trying to polish a turd and make it look like a gem. You know, you're not. Uh, 
I have had clients who, um, you know, the job of a publicist a lot of times is to get your client out of trouble, mm -hmm. um, especially if your client is high profile and they've done something that usually the next morning they're not proud of, right. you know, and uh, the, you're either trying to stop it from getting publicity or you're trying to gen Spend up publicity it. to make them look in a positive light. Um, and I, uh, I can't do it, you know, I, for a while I could and for a long while I could and, and, and enjoyed it. I don't enjoy it anymore. I mean, I have one client. I have one client that I love, and uh, she she's she has, she has a dance company and um, do a lot of work for her. And she'll be my only client that I have as going into graduate school, because as we go into graduate school, you know, I mean, this idea of working like we worked in undergrad isn't going to translate. No, no. So um, it's going to be. So she'll be my only client, and, and I feel at ease and comfortable with that. And I'm at peace with that. So um, because I, I love her work, I enjoy working with her. Um, but I, I have no, no I, I don't mind saying at all that uh, I, the industry that I'm in is messed up. Uh, and I mean, I started in public relations. I went on, I did publicity for big box bookstore um, I I've seen all aspects of it and I can tell you I can count on one hand the people who have the character and integrity that I want you know yeah. and I've met hundreds of people and I can count on one hand those people yeah and um, they usually most of those people have gotten out of the industry too it's interesting that certain fields attract certain types of personalities and they tend to, especially with, I guess, publicity and um, I'd, I'd certainly think this way about the business side of film and obviously the finance sector and the insurance sector. They attract people who just aren't really morally... <laughs> I, I'm trying to put it nicely, and I can't. They're just morally reprehensible scumbags. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you kind of, I mean, but, but you know what? I mean, it lends itself to that. I mean, you almost have to be. Yeah. And that's the problem, is it's set up in a way that only morally reprehensible people can do it, or you maybe aren't morally reprehensible, but you have to do morally reprehensible things yeah. in order to survive. And that is a problem. I mean, yeah. like if I can't if I can't honestly put out a press release about a client because it's not going to generate publicity, then I have to create a story. As as my old boss used to say at a PR firm I used to work, you know, we are um, managing perception, and that's kind of a, a generic term today. When I started, it was his term, you know manage perception we are managing people's perception yeah. the whole idea of managing your perception is reprehensible you know it so instead of just putting a client out there for their talent and for their worth you're having to kind of put some bells and whistles on them that aren't real 
um, in order to make them palatable to an audience. And plus, the other thing that we're looking at too is that you know there's so much noise going on. I mean, it's it, the the crowd the the field is so crowded with so many people because everyone has access to getting out there that you've got to do something to break through that noise and that's the trick and usually it's always morally reprehensible yeah well you know it's um interesting when i first started my production company my now defunct production company back in 2008 somebody told me it's a business consultant who i knew who's now passed he told me that the best salesman is the one you always see but and because he knew when he met me that I was more of the artist rather than the business person uh, but I was trying my hand at running a business and he was just basically like look the best salesman will win and unless you are really good at grifting nobody's going to notice you no matter how good you are and so for since then I've always kind of had this mentality that all these people were seeing winning like film awards or uh, the people that we're seeing on the, you know, their photography on the covers of certain magazines or whatever, that they were able to get there, not because they're the best, but because they were really good salespeople or had good salespeople backing them. And uh, and I feel like what you're saying kind of backs that up as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think also like you just look at, just look at, um, let's just look at the literary world. I mean, like, for the most part, the big names in the literary world. Let's just go back to maybe the maybe the um, just after the Great Depression. Um, Hemingway. Hemingway, you know Fitzgerald. I mean those those, those sorts of, uh, of of people. Um, but what you those were the big names, yeah. and they're great names. They're great names. I mean, I, I love Hemingway. I love Fitzgerald. Um, but there was some really great writing of that period that nobody knows the names of, you know, like uh, Dawn Powell. Uh, I just got turned on to her by a friend randomly who's like, I'm getting rid of these books. And I started reading these books and the writing is some of the most remarkable writing I've ever read. Um, far better than the, the big names. Yeah. Uh, but probably it had a lot to do with the fact that she was female in that time um, and it probably had a lot to do I mean it had, not probably it had a lot to do with even the machine then you know who was promoting her yeah. um, you know and and who like a one off like um, uh, uh, Harper Lee gets to kill a mockingbird and then doesn't write anything else <laughs> And it becomes one of the best-selling pieces of all time. And then you have somebody who like Don, Don Powell or, or others of that time period, uh, wonderful, remarkable writers, now amplify that by a million-fold. And that's what's happening today. Because yeah. everyone can't, has access to be a writer, and everyone has access to be a producer. Everyone has access to be a filmmaker. So everyone thinks that they are, right? And so you're fighting through all of that crap. N- not only us as individual artists, but 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 other people who have wonderful, great talent are fighting through all of that. But it's usually the person who ha- right has the, the 
most well well oiled machine yeah. who, who's getting and it's it's true too like the proof of this is if you go on Amazon if you have Amazon Prime mm-hmm. you could go in and you can look at a lot of independent films that nobody's ever seen or heard of because they just Absolutely. they don't have the name or the financing to push it to the front page exactly so there's this musical that was shot for about 50 grand really? in West Harlem called Welcome to Harlem by a guy named Mark Blackman now he's been through the festival circuit he's won some awards and he doesn't have like a distribution deal he just kind of put it up on Amazon uh, and you can watch it for free if as long as you have a prime subscription and we're talking original songs high quality film the guy shot it on a professional level cinema camera um, he had all kinds of really professional like stage singers come to West Harlem blocked out the streets to shoot it it looks like a feature film that was financed by a studio and the fact that nobody on my yeah. network has ever seen it is exactly. really infuriating because this is a guy who should have by now made the sequel and had a studio deal and it's just proof you know you know we're not seeing the best of the best oh and- i just went to see a, a musical called the view upstairs last week uh I was going in thinking I don't really want to go. I almost didn't show up. I, you know, had the tickets and I just went anyway. I was blown away by all original music. The acting was superb. The writing was superb. This guy who wrote he wrote the book. He wrote the 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 script. He wrote everything uh, by the name of Max Vernon. Um, and the clo- show closed I think a couple of days ago. And I had a chance to talk to Max after the uh, the performance, and he said, "No, it probably won't go anywhere beyond this because the right people didn't see it, yeah. you know." And yet, there's so much. I've been recently to I won't even mention the names of them, but some really bad shows that have a lot of funding, and so it's it's exactly that thing. That thing, you know, we're we're welcome to Harlem, you know. It's yeah. the right people are not seeing it. When you say the right people, that's the pe- people with money, right? <laughs> the people who can, uh, the the salespeople that you need to put it out there, right? Uh, same thing in publishing. It's the same thing in same film. Thing. Music is a big one. Yep. Um, you know, by the way, I just saw a really fantastic music video from one of our former editors. Oh, um, what? I don't know if you remember him because he didn't show up that much at the latter oh, half. Right. <laughs> remember him? I do. <laughs> he actually made, he's a, he's a really good artist. I took a, a performing literature class with him. Oh yeah. Uh, and so I always knew that he was a really good writer. But he actually came out with a really fantastic music video, and I've been trying to push that. Um, but it, it's one of those things too, where I just kind of fear, like because there's no money behind it, nobody right. will ever see it, or the right people won't ever see it. Right. Exactly. I mean, like, and how do you, how how does something or like a music video, for instance, you know, especially as opposed to perhaps writing. Um, music video is something that can take off overnight if it, if it you know, gets the right exposure. It can become yeah. viral. But even now, this term viral has become so watered down because it, it's so manufactured. Yeah. You know, there's uh, hardly anything. When, when things went viral, you know, five, ten years ago, it was... It, it was legit. It was now legit. Now you can produce viral. Now you can produce viral. And there's a there's I a remember formula. when Kimmel revealed that he had actually produced a video that everybody thought was a home video of somebody falling on their ass. Uh, oh, really? I don't know if you remember that. No. There was this 
somebody dancing or something and then they fall on their ass and they break a table and it went viral and then he revealed a few weeks later that he was right. the one that produced it to see if they could make a video that goes viral it was, he's actually I don't know if you watch his show or his clips on YouTube but he's really good at these social experiments like he'll go out onto the sidewalk and he'll interview people yeah, about things that don't great. actually exist yeah. <laughs> and they'll pretend that they like you know, I they remember the one that really brilliant was going and interviewing people uh about obamacare and the aca and, <laughs> like when you called it the aca you know people loved it and then he would like the, the next question people be, be, what about obamacare They're, oh no 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 yeah because they didn't realize that it was the same thing so, <laughs> yeah yeah or when you like Jay Leno used to do a little bit like that. He would go and ask people, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't as brilliant. Like Kimmel's taking it to a different level. Jay Leno used to go out and just ask people random questions, like recite the Pledge of Allegiance and catch them off guard, and they couldn't do it. Kimmel's like actually has like this 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 direct you know the direct action of you know interviewing people about things that don't exist and then they everyone of course doesn't want to look stupid so they, they pretend to know what you're talking about um you know another late night not Kimmel but I did appreciate Jimmy Fallon coming out recently by the way just as a side note to say that uh he his Trump interview he was really he apologized for that Trump interview that was nothing but flop he did that last week. He apologized oh. for the bluffy interview he gave him. I think his candidate. Um, I didn't know he tousled did. his hair and ha ha ha. And laugh. I remember refusing to watch it because I just yeah. assumed that he wouldn't. Yeah, get it too meaty with it. But, piece. Um, and I remember he got flack, which he deserved. <laughs> uh, I didn't know he had apologized for it. Though. Yeah, no, and so I appreciated that just because you know you, it's rare these days where a genuine apology comes out and you're like, mm, nope, sorry. Mm. I, I let a lot of people down. I also appreciate how uh, Colbert has come around and just like, I mean, he's always been strong. But in the past couple of weeks, the gloves have come off. Yeah. Well, Colbert did initially, when it wasn't clear that Trump would be the candidate, I remember Colbert said on the air, he said these exact words. He said, but I'm pretty sure that Trump isn't going to be the worst president we've ever had. Oh. And day one, it was the worst president we ever right. had. So right. I, I think that that statement, probably he remembers saying it. Because right. also, when the president of the United States targets you for something you've said, gloves have to come off because right. they're not going to move their target otherwise. You know, right. it's just, um, he, I think he's at a point now, they're all at a point now where they have to make it clear that there, there can be no tolerance for an anti-press government. Absolutely. Uh, it's dis disturbing. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I posted something, I'm taking a little social media break I, as of yesterday, so I don't, I don't know how long you. this is going to last, <laughs> but um, I think it was Sunday or maybe Saturday I posted something about this sheriff um, who's just been hired at the uh, DHS Um Oh, what's his face? Uh, David Clark, yeah. who um, he wears, you know, this 10-gallon hat, and he has yep. all these uh, medallions that, by the way, mean nothing. Like, they're, they're all these medals that they found out just mean nothing. He bought them probably at a dime store, uh, but makes him look like, you know, he's, he's 
earned some valor that he hasn't. But um, I posted this article about he he's plagiarized uh, a lot of his master's thesis. That doesn't surprise me. Um, and the way that he plagiarized it was that he, in, in, in the body of the work, he didn't put quotes around certain things, but he did put footnotes. Problem with that, of course, is as the um, guidelines, or it was the Naval Postgraduate School says in their in their guidelines, you know, about plagiarism, uh, you have if you're quoting someone directly, you have to use quotes. As a any freshman in high school would learn, that's what you have to do. He did it over forty times. It wasn't just one mistake. He did it over forty times, and he's quoting things like the ACLU. Now, if you know anything <laughs> about this man, like. The fact that he's quoting the ACLU is, is funny in and of itself. But anyway, I just happened to post that and about his fake medals. And the response, I don't know where they came from. I don't know if a word went out. But um, if you go to my Facebook page, you go to that. I mean, vile responses attacking me, attacking my sexuality in very descriptive yeah. terms um in ways that you were just kind of no one for the most part either didn't address the plagiarism or said which is becoming more typical and i think even more scary so what you know okay he did it so what um which is kind of what they're doing how they're normalizing trump it's not denying yeah. that he does it anymore it's that oh yeah we we know he's done it so what it's kind of it's this this trajectory that you notice is happening, especially with um with the Russian thing. So the GOP originally, it's like, nope, he never had they, the campaign never had contact with the Russians. Proof comes out that they did. Okay, they did, but so it doesn't what? mean anything. Yeah. So what? <laughs> you know, uh, it's, oh, and, it's so until scary. eventually it gets to everybody does it. No, everybody doesn't do it. If you or I did what David Clark did. Uh, we wouldn't have, I, my paper would have been failed. Yeah. Um, if your master's thesis did it, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a master's. master's thesis. I mean, this is just. Your dissertation does it. You don't get a PhD, absolutely. boy. So, Jeez. But they came at me in a way I, I haven't been come at in a while. Like, it was nasty. It was just comment after comment after comment. I feel like then you're doing the right thing. And you're like, you've been sort of validated Oh, I, I mentioned that. Like, eventually, by the end of it, I, I mean, I wrote a comment. I can't remember exactly what I said. But I said, occasionally, you know, I, I get caught up in my own echo chamber of my own beliefs. And, and, and I wonder what the other side is thinking. And what this experience has proved to me is that they're not. Yeah. That's it. You know? Well, I, I think a lot of people like, okay, so I unfortunately know a lot of Trump voters. We're uh, recording this podcast in the only borough of New York City that went to Donald Trump uh, in the election, uh, although my neighborhood didn't, thankfully. But uh, I know a lot of Trump voters, and they basically don't give a shit. Most of them don't realize the ramifications of what his election actually means. You know, I was talking with my sister about it shortly after the election, and that was the, the, the specific understanding was they voted for him out of anger right. they didn't care what he was running on or what the stuff he was saying but what's worst of it they don't know what his election actually means and what it there's no real 
uh, word or phrase to describe what it means. It's just that it's terrifying. It's it's revealing something about our society that we were hoping we were getting away from, and uh, I, you know, and they're not going to change. Right. The fact that they haven't changed in fifty years. Right. What's going to change them about you know the Russian thing? If the Absolutely. Russian, if the Russian government promises to help. Trump take it back to the 1950s. I'm pretty sure that all the people that voted for Trump are going to be totally fine with that. Absolutely. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I I was always been involved in politics and I was living in Texas and I had a thought and I don't know why this has stood out to me all these years, but it's seemingly fleeting thought, but it stuck with me and that was that it was during the time of Bill Clinton, it was prior to anything about Monica Lewinsky, but there was a seething hatred, especially where I'm from, of Clinton. Irrational. Yeah. Uh, just hated him. You know, they needed something to pin on him. But this was prior to Monica. And uh, I remember walking out to my car one day after class, I don't know why, and just thinking, when someone taps into that, they're going to win. And I didn't know it would take, you know, 20 years, but uh, he tapped into it. I don't know. I don't think he's smart enough to realize that he was tapping into it. I think he he was. You do? He's a grifter. You think he's that smart? Sometimes I do, and then I see things, and I think... I think he's smart but plays dumb, and I only say that because I know somebody who grew up in his neighborhood who... He's deceased now, but kind of came off exactly like him. There's just this way... They know how to play dumb, but they also know what the fuck they're doing. Well, I remember thinking if someone can tap into that, they're going to get it. And that's the thing. There has been this. It's right. As you were saying, it's been this kind of, you know, simmering thing for a while. We thought we had passed it. But now with him, they've all come out of the woodwork and they don't care. And exactly like if if Russia, if, if Russia comes out and says they're against gay people and they're against abortion and um, they are, you know, uh, against minorities in whatever in respect. Um, sure. Yeah, they'll pledge allegiance to Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth. And I have seen, like, my family, too. I mean, my, almost my entire side of my maternal family uh, voted for Trump. And yeah. I remember back in June before he was the nominee going. You know, a lot of, pe- a lot of people, change. too, like... Especially the non-New Yorkers. Like, I, I fault New Yorkers who vote for him, the few New Yorkers that actually voted for him more than most people because most people don't really realize how he does business. Right. We know because we live right. in New York City right. and we hear the stories. Right. Um, but with that said, let's taper back to Monica Lewinsky because she's now um, become a bit of a hero because she's now uh, using her life to advocate against... Uh, cyberbullying, which uh, mm-hmm. she was a huge victim of right. for many, many years. And um, the guy who made her situation hell was a congressman named Henry Hyde. He yeah, was a absolutely. congressman out of yeah. Illinois. This is, a cool, this is a story I'm going to tell you, but it's absolutely true. And I think you might be interested in it because I got revenge on Henry Hyde nice. back in the summer of 2005. He was still in office yeah. um, and he doesn't even realize it. OK, so I was shooting a film called The Long Island Project. Mm-hmm. It's a film. It was kind of this uh, dramatic indie about 
Long Island seceding from New York to become its own state, and the bad guy in it was this fictional senator from New York named Deacons. And uh, we did a day of shooting down in Washington, D.C., and somehow, some way, we managed to get a meeting with Henry Hyde. Wow. Yep. And so we brought the camera equipment into his office and we were shooting the shit. And then we were like, hey, would you mind doing an improvisational moment just to kind of see if you can act? And he's like, sure. I had the camera rolling unbeknownst to him. And before I knew it, I had a scene where Henry Hyde was playing a co-conspirator with the villain to murder a bunch of Long Islanders. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got to put it in the movie, and nothing ever happened because one, he's a public figure; two, he died shortly after oh, that. Right. But I have him on film as a villain, uh, nice. Which I feel like was really appropriate because he was certainly a villain in real life. Nice. <laughs> I did something similar to that. I uh, with Ted Nugent. Uh, oh, that fucker! <laughs> I had a book signing with him in Fort Worth, Texas. And he had just been banned. I believe he had been banned from San Antonio because he had told a bunch of, I mean, like from the stage, he said, if you can't speak the language, go back to your own country and blah, blah, blah. No, but I agree. Yeah. And, uh, so I put his little press conference that he was having for the book signing, I put it right in front of the Libros in Espanol. <laughs> and his wife, who, I don't know, I'm not going to make any judgments, but she's very beautiful out of his league type wife uh he uh, i mean she she pointed it out but the the press conference was already underway and there's nothing that she could do and she got really angry but he actually said to me um and the, it went on but he actually said to me afterwards he didn't know he actually came back the next day he was doing on the tour on tour with kiss and he came back to the cafe the next day and i was there doing another signing and he said oh that was a great sign he knew nothing about me that was a great sign blah 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 and randomly as randomly as this that was a great signing by the way yesterday i was really happy with it you know i really think all gays should be put on an island as i mean that's exactly like you're like what what <laughs> and he knew nothing about me and i was like well i i'm I didn't. I don't know if I didn't have the courage, if I didn't have the the strength, or if I just was tired that day. I don't know what it was. I was like, you know what? I've, I've got to go. And <laughs> sometimes um, that's the best response. Yeah. Like, obviously, I feel the same way about racists and yeah. prejudiced people in general. But like, best responses is to not give the fuckers the light of day or the reaction that they're right. looking for, even if they don't think they're looking for a reaction. I think a lot of them are. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he. I think he was. Something in him wanted me to go. Yeah. but um yeah i didn't but those sorts of things are, are always fun so how long we've been going here so that's that's pretty close to an hour that was a nice. good talk john mark um thanks for having me